Amen. Thank you for that. Have you ever really considered the potential of what could happen if God gets hold of a life? I would say that the possibilities are absolutely limitless at what God can do. So during the worship services over the last several weeks, we've seen uh, these stories of folks who encounter Jesus. And we recognize that when somebody meets Jesus, it's always good news. Well, we have called the series that we've been going through, This Is My Story, and we're going to continue that again this morning. We saw a few weeks ago when Jesus met a man who was filled with demons, that all of a sudden he was delivered from the demons and he was deployed to tell what Jesus had done for him. So uh, in that whole moment there, uh, Jesus dramatically changes the single life of a person that reaches into eternity. A couple weeks ago, we looked at a religious man who met Jesus. He thought that legalism would be enough to guarantee him eternal life, but he found through that encounter with Jesus that being good would never be good enough. Last week, we looked at a woman who was caught in the act of adultery. She was brought before Jesus, and when she meets Jesus, she receives pardon for her sins, and then she was set free to live her life in a different way. Well, today, we're going to look at one of the most dramatic examples in history of what happens when God invades a person's life. In fact, this passage of scripture represents one of the most important events in church history. After Jesus was resurrected, he walked the earth for 40 days, encountered people in that resurrected body. The church is established, he commissions them to go and to make disciples and then he ascends into heaven. And then the greatest act that ever occurred in church history was just soon after he departed. Acts 2 describes the moment. It was about the year 30 A.D. on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit comes on the church. The greatest moment in the history of the church. I think that the third greatest moment in the history of the church occurs in Acts 10. That's when all of a sudden the door to the gospel is open to the Gentiles. Up until that point, it had been reserved for the 12 tribes, but now the gospel spreads. And so in that moment, uh, the scope of the impact of the gospel just is multiplied to the greatest degree. But I think the second most important event, most significant event in the history of the church is described in Acts 9. This is around the year 35 AD, just soon after Stephen is martyred for his faith. And it's the story we're going to be looking at this morning. It's the conversion of of Saul, who became known as Paul. It really is very difficult to overstate the significance of this moment in church history. This moment in history absolutely changes the direction and the trajectory of the church. It's a powerful moment, and it's more than just biographical information of what happens when somebody surrenders to Jesus. I actually think that this passage of Scripture contains principles or application for each of us this morning. So I want to invite you, you can turn with me to the New Testament, second part of the Bible, fifth book, it's the book of Acts, and we're going to be in chapter 9 this morning where we learn about this man named Saul. I'm going to read to you verses 1 and 2. Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus. So that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. 
So Saul's conversion is described three times in the book of Acts. It's contained here. It's narrated by Luke, the author of this, Bible, of this book. And then the, uh, Paul gives his own testimony in two other places in the book of the Acts, and close to the end, as he's kind of uh, sharing his testimony before folks. And there's also biographical detail about Paul, his life, his conversion, contained within his epistles, so that we can take that detail and be able to really reinforce what we know about Paul's identity, about his conversion, and about the specific commission that God gives to him. We know that Saul is a Jewish man. He's living in the city of, or he's from the city of Tarsus, which is uh, in modern-day Turkey near the Mediterranean coast. He is likely from a family that we might consider like upper-middle class. There was some sort of uh, well-to-do feature about them because of the type of training that Saul received. He studied under the, one of the greatest Jewish rabbis of the time, Gamaliel. Saul was a Pharisee. He understood that to mean he was a passionate Jew. And he was zealous for God and the things of God. In fact, he was so zealous for God that he began to persecute Christians. Because in his eyes, Christians were following wrong teaching. So they were Jewish people who now were abandoning the traditional Orthodox, Orthodox teaching of the, the Judaism. And they're following this man who is dead now. And they're claiming that he was Messiah. So the scripture says he was breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He was involved in having these people arrested and then brought before the Sanhedrin so that they might be punished. He did not discriminate. This passage says he would take men and women alike. His goal was to force these Christians to recant their beliefs. In fact, he spells it out real clearly in Acts 26, verse 11. It says, And as I punished them often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme. So that's his goal. And if it led even further, he would cast a vote against them so that they might receive the death penalty. We know he did that in the case of Stephen. He voted against him so that he might be put to death. His zeal for eliminating the influence of these followers of Jesus was so great that when the Christians fled from Jerusalem because they felt the persecution in Jerusalem, they wanted to get out of town, they fled the city. Saul said, well, let's hunt them down. And he went after them. In fact, he says he went to receive letters of introduction from the high priest, so that he might go to the synagogues in these foreign cities. He would show them these letters of introduction, say, I'm one of you, and he would try to win them over in his drive to locate uh, these that follow the way of Jesus and then have them arrested, perhaps brought back to Jerusalem so that they might be disciplined. They might be punished for what they believe. You have to understand at this point in history, Christianity is very much a part of Judaism. So it's not that people converted and then left the synagogues or converted and then abandoned Judaism. What they did is they continued to practice their faith, but now they practice it according to Jesus' interpretation. That's really what they felt they were doing. Following the way was following the specific way within Judaism. We know from the writings of a historian named Josephus that the city of Damascus had a large Jewish population there in the first century. Now, a quick side note here. Damascus, which we know is the capital of Syria, is the oldest continually 
occupied city in the world. You can read in the book of Genesis about Damascus. In, verse, in chapter 14 and uh, chapter 15, uh, Abraham refers to a relative that he has in Damascus. So this is an old city. And that's one of the reasons this civil war in Syria and what's happening within Damascus is just so heartbreaking. So you're to, I, I want to encourage you to pray for this nation. Pray for the city of Damascus. And we can tell from Acts 9, from the very beginning of the church, Christians have been in Damascus. So you pray for the Christians who are experiencing what they have to live through in Damascus. In the days of Saul, there's this huge population of, or large population of Jews there in Damascus. And Saul is traveling to Damascus in order to stomp out, stamp out, put a stop to the spread of Christianity. We know from another account that it was about noon, that he's walking down this road to Damascus when he sees this blinding light and his life is absolutely rocked. Verses 3 through 6 of Acts 9 says, as he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, who you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and it will be told you what you must do. Because we know what time of day this happened, we can imagine the light that Saul saw was just overwhelming. Because it was midday, the brightest part of the day. And he's overwhelmed to the point that he falls to the ground. He says they all fell to the ground in another account. He's probably covering his eyes because it's so bright. And he hears this voice. In fact, verse 7 says the men who were traveling with him also heard the voice, but they didn't see somebody who was speaking. So they heard this voice, and the voice says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Some of your versions may include what it says in Acts 26, in uh, verse, uh, let's see here, verse 14, where it talks about when he fell to the ground, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And, he's, and the voice says, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. So that's speaking of an ox goad that a farmer or, uh, you know, a, a herder would use to prod along a stubborn ox who wanted to go the wrong way, to push him along, to keep him moving. So the point being made by the statement is, it, is it's futile for you, Saul, to kick against God's movement in your life. God has a plan for this man, and Jesus has interrupted his life. And he's not going to let up until, Paul, until Saul says yes. And so he just keeps prodding. So it's hard for you to kick against the goats. Now, this was not an event that happened to Saul on a regular basis. I think sometimes we read these accounts in Scripture and we're like, I bet that happened all the time. I wish I lived in that period. But it did. This was something unique. It really was caught off guard. And he's wondering, I mean, where is that voice coming from? So he says, who are you, Lord? Now, that's not a confession because we know with confidence Saul did not believe that the Lord, that Jesus was God. So he did, was not saying, I believe who you are. He's just speaking respectfully because there's a voice, there's a blinding light, and I better be respectful of whoever this is. So who are you, Lord? That's what he says. Well, Jesus fills in the blanks. And Saul must have been totally 
shocked. The voice says, I am Jesus. If you'll notice, Saul didn't respond to that statement. <laughs> because just like the men who were with him, he's shocked. You know, cat's got his tongue. He doesn't know what to say. I mean, think about it. Saul believed very firmly that Jesus is dead. Dead and gone. Nothing more to speak of, to do. He understood that Jesus was a fraud. But it turns out these disciples of Jesus who said he's alive have been right all along. Jesus is not dead. He is alive. And Saul knows in this moment, or he's probably at least contemplating, am I wrong? <laughs> you know, what, what, where did I miss this? Well, Saul is about to experience the biggest turnaround of his life. Jesus tells him to get up, to go in the city, to wait for further instructions. We all kind of know what that's like when God tells us to wait. So he goes to wait, and he waits for three days. While he's there, he's, he's blind. He cannot see a thing. So he's had to be led around by a guide. We also know that he doesn't, the verse says he doesn't eat or drink during that period of time. So he could have been feeling sick, or it could have been a deliberate fast, so that he could hear the voice of the Lord more prominently, perhaps. Well, God is clearly orchestrating these dramatic events. He brings Saul to Damascus. He interrupts his trip. And now he needs someone to minister to this man. So look with me, verses 10 through 12. Now, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, get up and go to the street called Straight. And inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he's praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him, so that he might regain his sight. Ananias is simply described as a disciple. He's a follower of Jesus. And all of a sudden he receives this vision from the Lord. He's given very specific instructions you know, this is the Siri of the day. You know, he says, you're going to go into Damascus, the street that's called Straight, Straight Street. That's what it is. As a matter of fact, they say the street still exists in Damascus today. Straight Street. You're going to go to Judas's house. You'll go inside. There'll be a man there from Tarsus. His name is Saul. And in case you happen upon another house where there's another man named Saul from Tarsus, this one's receiving a vision right now, and he knows you're coming. And so how does Saul respond? I mean, how does Ananias respond? Do you think that Ananias had heard of Saul of Tarsus? Well, he had. Verse 13. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. So evidently he knew that the priests of Damascus were going to allow him to do what he came there to do. Ananias knew Saul is the archenemy of the church. He's no friend of ours. A few weeks ago, Buster, our minister of administration, received an email. And it said, hey, Buster, this is Wes. I need you to help me with something. So Buster picks up his phone and calls me on my cell phone. And he says, hey, Wes, what's up? And I said, not much. How are you? And he says, uh, did you email me? You need something? And I said, nope, I didn't. So it turns out. There was an imposter who had hacked into my email and is emailing Buster and who, who knows who else, asking them for things if they were to respond. Fortunately, I don't think anybody did. I know Ananias didn't have email, but it's almost like Ananias was making sure the connections are correct. 
is this an imposter's voice? You know, is this an imposter's kind of vision to me in this moment? God, did you mean Saul of Tarsus? Maybe you meant Kyle of Tarsus. I'm sure there's a Kyle, and maybe because I, I know about Saul. I don't want to go into his house. I don't, or I don't want to go into Judas' house and meet Saul. I know what kind of man he's like. Verse 15 and 16. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So no argument. God simply says, I got plans for this one. And he explains the plans are for his, this great persecutor to endure great persecution on behalf of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So he's God's chosen instrument. I love that phrasing. God's chosen instrument for doing a great thing. Verses 17 through the end of this passage, verse 19. It says, so Ananias departed and entered the house. And after laying his hands on him, said, brother Saul... The Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales. And he regained his sight and he got up and was baptized and he took food and was strengthened. Ananias responds to God's calling. He goes to Saul. He lays hands upon him which is already a show of affection. He refers to him as brother Saul. So in other words, you're one of ours. He, ad he admits or accepts him as a brother in Christ. He makes sure he receives baptism. We know he receives the Holy Spirit. And then there's this clear act of grace. The scales, some versions say flakes, fall off his eyes. And all of a sudden, this blind man can see. He is immediately healed. And it's also indicative of spiritual healing. I think if you wanted to summarize what happened when Saul encountered Jesus, you could probably just listen to what the choir sang. Jesus brought Saul out, turned his life around, now he's on his way. That's kind of what happened. And the message for you and I this morning is not much different. God wants to do a 180 in your life. I don't have to explain to you what it meant for Saul to come to Christ. I mean, Ananias is afraid to go visit him. Saul was the last man that he wanted to have a close-up encounter with he probably thought he was beyond the reach of sharing the gospel with. So he's not looking for that. Saul is a self-avowed enemy of Jesus. So Ananias had no natural desire to seek him out. He didn't think, well, if I could just get close enough and share the Roman road with him. Of course, the Roman road didn't exist because Saul is not yet Paul. But God was at work in Saul's life. And here's another key point. Saul was not looking for Jesus. Ananias is not looking for Saul. Saul's not looking for Jesus. You would not characterize him as a seeker. Now Nicodemus came to Jesus under the cover of night because he had questions. He wanted to understand. He kind of wanted to test what was happening. Not Saul. Saul's pursuing Christ's followers in order to do whatever means, by whatever means necessary to stop them in their pursuit of God and making, him, uh, making Jesus known. So he's passionate about this. Do you know why? It's not because he's shaking his fist at God and saying, I'll show you. He thinks this is what God wants him to do. So he's only saying, God, let me take it. And he's going to try to stop what he believed was outside of God's will. So he's not looking for Jesus. He's not putting his belief system on the table to have it tested. He is fully committed to persecuting Christ's followers. 
So with no evidence of him having moved toward Christianity, in a moment, he experiences a sudden turnaround. The English word conversion comes from the Latin word converter, which means literally to turn around. So conversion is literally to turn around. It's not, well, I'll keep going this way, and Jesus, why don't you come with me? When you are converted, you are going this direction, and you get turned around. It's to live in an absolutely different way. Saul did not intend to turn around when he was going down the Damascus Road. He was zealous to stomp out the advance of the gospel, and now the gospel has stopped him in his tracks. Now, there are certain aspects of Paul's conversion that are typical for most every conversion. The first is this principle of divine intervention. It's so obvious in Saul's life that God's at work. I mean, look at what he does. He sends the blinding light. He speaks to him. He gives a vision to Ananias, a vision to Saul. And then uh, Ananias lays hands on him and the scales fall off. So God's at work here. Well, it's the same in every conversion. It may not look exactly the same. But Jesus himself says in John 6, 44, um, he says to us, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. So the divine initiative is an act of God. The atonement is an act of God. And the conversion occurs as the one who God is drawing responds by faith and believes. So every conversion, divine initiative, also every conversion is a personal encounter. Now, when you responded to the Lord, it might have been with several other people. But it is always, every single time, a single person have an encounter with Jesus. Well, we may say that God wants to do a full 180 with your life, but I think the problem is we don't always believe that. Some people believe they are just too far gone for that kind of thing. They're too messed up for God to set them straight. It's not that you're pessimistic, you're just realistic when you think about your life. And you think, I've just got too much baggage for God to want to deal with. I've got too many issues, and I've got too little faith. Or you think that God is not interested, or he doesn't do that kind of thing anymore. Sure, he did that for Saul, but he doesn't really do that thing anymore. He expects us by our own, to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps and turn our life around. And you don't believe that you have the power or the discipline or, or the desire to do that. Well, if that's what you believe, I want you to make sure you've got your eyes on me. Because I want to refute what you believe, and I want you to listen very cl closely to what I say. See, I believe in a good God who created the world and everything that inhabits it. And out of the dust of the earth, he breathes the breath of life into man. And since the dawn of humanity on earth, it has always been God's design and power that has brought human life into being. And God knows everyone by name. And he knows the details of their life. That includes you. And he loves you. Even though he knows you, he's not repelled by you. The situation that you find yourself in, the pit that you feel like you're living in, does not turn him away. He does not want to repay you for the mess you've made of your life. He wants to rescue you. That's what his desire is to do. His desire is not that not one would perish. That means he loves you so much that he would go to the greatest lengths in order to rescue you. In fact, he did. 
He sent his only son, Jesus, on the greatest rescue mission known to mankind. He comes to earth and he takes all of the evil, all of the wrongdoing, all of the suffering and the pain on himself, and he suffers the punishment that each of us deserved. So he died in your place so that you could receive forgiveness. He entered our mess so that we could get cleaned up. And he's not dead. He is alive. And he promises you the hope of resurrection this morning. You know, my testimony is not like Saul's. Fortunately, I was raised in a Christian family. My parents made sure at a young age I knew the scriptures. I knew that God loved me. I knew who Jesus was. They prayed for me. And as a young boy, I recognized God was working in my life. And God wanted me to respond to this act of grace. And I did. But I can tell you this, if it was not for the grace of God, I know where I'd be. And so I can say with every other person, he picked me up out of the pit. He turned me around. He placed my feet on solid ground. And he will do it for you too. So one of my greatest heroes, Corey Tinboom, wrote, There is no pit so deep that God's love is not deeper still. Receive Jesus. He will complete the 180 in your life. There's another problem, though. Perhaps God has done it in our life, but we don't believe God will do it in other people's lives. At least the people that we know that we encounter. And I don't know why we think that. We think they're too far gone. Or we think that, you know, society's changed to the fact that they're not interested in hearing about Jesus. Or that people are too threatened. Or that you're too afraid. Or, or maybe we just don't believe in hell. And so we say, I don't need to share my faith with them. They're not going to respond anyways. Listen. We were not converted in order to savor the experience. We were converted in order to witness. Conversion and commission go together. Like most of y'all, I saw the most incredible witnessing take place this past week by someone who had suffered so much. Amber Geiger was a police officer who walked into what she thought was her apartment and found a man there. She pulled out a gun. She shot and killed this man in what was his apartment. She was found guilty by a jury, and then at that sentencing trial, her brother, I mean, the, the, the deceased man's brother, Brant Jean, takes the stand to confront his brother's killer. And he does the most amazing thing and confounds everybody who was watching it. Because it appears that for Brant, what mattered most was the gospel, God's love, God's grace, and an opportunity for his brother's killer to receive the grace found in a relationship with Jesus. So we were all stunned to see him urge her from the witness stand to receive Jesus and then embrace her there in the middle of that courtroom. And then the judge is overwhelmed by it, presents her with the Bible, reads to her John 3, 16. Because God's love and grace is for every soul, even when they are our perceived enemies. Brant John saw Amber Geiger the way that God saw her. Sheep without a shepherd. The problem is we don't see people the way Jesus sees them. We see them for what they can do for us or what they, perhaps they have done to us. But as believers in Jesus Christ, we are saved in order to share. Conversion and commission go together. As most of you will know, Saul goes on to become the greatest force for the gospel in the first century. He writes 13 books that are contained in your Bible. He does exactly what the Lord says he will do in that vision to Ananias. He preaches before the sons of Israel, before Gentiles, and before kings. Clearly, God was at work in Saul's life. But God chose to partner 
with an obscure saint living in Damascus. If Saul would not have converted, we would never have heard of this man named Ananias. God can use anybody to bring somebody to the Lord. That means he can even use you. There's another lesson here as well. Do not underestimate the value of one person brought to Christ. There's no way that Ananias knew the full impact that would take place by Saul receiving Jesus. Just one life saved uh, that is remembered as the second greatest moment in the history of the church. The other part of this is that we are called by God to live on mission. And as we are, we should never be afraid to obey God's will. Can you imagine how terrified Ananias was in that moment? When he goes in, puts his hand on him, calls him Brother Saul. Charles Stanley says his grandfather told him, if God tells you to run your head through a brick wall, you head for the wall, and when you get there, God will make a hole for it. His point's this. When God calls you to do something, trust and obey. Leave the circumstances of your obedience or the consequences of your obedience up to him. So if God's turned your life around, if he's set you on your way, can I suggest to you to be on your way means that you are living the mission that God has given you, which is to share his good news with those in our world. The goal of evangelism is simply this, to introduce people to Jesus. They don't know him. Introduce them to Jesus. We use different means to do that, but that's ultimately what it's about. And then as they respond to God's grace, the power of the Holy Spirit is unleashed in their life. And who knows what God might do when he gets a hold of a life. Our Father in God, we thank you so much for what you did there on that road to Damascus a couple thousand years ago. And what that means for me today. Because salvation runs straight through that street in Damascus. Lord, I pray right now for those that maybe are far from you that need to respond to this free gift of grace. Or maybe those who are walking with you that need now to live on mission. Father, I pray that as we hear the message, we would respond. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If God's speaking to you, we'd love for you to respond. I'll be down front. Maybe to come and join the, uh, the family of this church. It may be to respond to the gospel. It may be for some other need. If God's working in your heart, don't just sit there. You respond. So you stand. As our choir sings, I'll be down front. You respond.